Good morning. Certainly good to see you. You open your Bibles to the text that we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I was been impressed in my studies lately to notice that the word boasting is used 32 times in the two Corinthian letters. First and second Corinthians, 32 times Paul talks about boasting. Now that ought to intrigue us. We ought to be saying, what is that about? And I think that's really significant to understanding what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It is foundational uh, for discipleship. And without an understanding of what it means to boast in the Lord, I think we miss the true meaning of following Christ and what it means to follow Him and live our lives in honor of Him. This is a key phrase in the book, and in fact, I think 2 Corinthians, as some of us have talked about before, has been a very neglected letter. We are pretty acquainted with 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians is is quite different for us, and it is a difficult letter in many ways. But it is especially difficult when we come to this point of Paul talking about it, what it means to boast in the Lord. And so let's talk about that this morning. Uh, it, it has impressed me as I have studied it this past week and changed how I looked at some things, and that's what I want to share with you this morning. As most of you are aware, uh, 2 Corinthians... In fact, the Corinthian Christians had been beguiled, Paul's use of the term, had been beguiled by a group of false teachers. These false teachers had come in, and Paul says they had tampered with the Word of God. They were peddling God's Word in order for monetary gain. Uh, They gave the Corinthians plausible words of wisdom, but not the wisdom that came from God. They used disgraceful and underhanded ways in order to promote themselves, even to the point of calling themselves super apostles and much greater than the apostle of Paul or the other 12 apostles. Their message would be considered today a gospel of health and wealth. Follow them and you will live the good life. You will be able to find all kinds of popularity You'll be able to take care of yourself. You'll be able to enjoy the culture around you, enjoy the way life should be enjoyed. And that that was the, the message. And therefore, Paul presents a different message. Their boast was in themselves. Their boast was what they attained. Their boast was in their talents. And Paul turns that around on them. This whole section... Uh, begins with the idea that Paul comes to a what I would call a triumphant argument at the end of 2 Corinthians. And you can see in chapter 10 and verse 17 and 18, as he brings this to an end, he says, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And then Paul goes on from there and begins to contrast what it means to boast. And he gives a boasting 
that counters the boasting of the false teachers. What's interesting about it is, Paul says it's an absolute foolish, a, a, a foolish way of talking about serving Christ, a foolish way of boasting. And we say, well then, Paul, why are you doing it? And his answer really is, the idea is that I'm boasting, but my boast is different than theirs. Even as foolish it is, let me boast. But then we discover that he boasts in his suffering for Christ and not as the false teachers would have boasted. Before we discuss some of the details here, I'd like you to just look at chapter 12 there in those first 10 verses, and we're going to highlight just briefly the overall message here. First and foremost, this is, this is Paul's final boast, where it would have trumped everything that any of these false teachers would have, would, could have boasted about. The false teachers boasted about how well they spoke, how cute they were, and whatever else. And Paul comes around and says, well, let me boast in this man that I know. And uh, it's not really me, but he was caught up in the third heaven. Paul's being very cautious not to uh, exalt himself. And he says, this man was caught up in the flesh or out of the flesh, I'm not sure. He went up into the third heaven, into paradise itself, was revealed things that he could not even repeat. And that's the man I will boast about. And then he turns around and says, well, really, what I'm boasting about is not the visions, but the thorn in the flesh that I was given as a messenger from a messenger of Satan. So it is interesting that when Paul says that, he says, here's the deal. I got all that exaltation, but then God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And three times I prayed that it would be taken away from me. Now this thorn in the flesh, I want you to know, is a messenger from Satan. Please log that away. A messenger of Satan came and gave him this thorn in the flesh. And three times he asked God to take it away. And let's, let's make this very clear as well. And God said no. Paul said, God gave me the thorn in the flesh in order to keep me from becoming arrogant. And therefore he said, absolutely not. And because of that, Paul discovers now the true value in his weaknesses. Now please pay, a bit, pay careful attention to this. Here is Paul teaching us, I'm learning something at this time. I too many times, you probably do too, you just read Paul and go, Paul just had it all together. Paul had it all together and there was just no, no little glitch in Paul. Not so. When he showed up to, the, to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2, he says, I came to you in fear and trembling, anguish. He came in fear. He came in trembling. And God teaches him things through this. And so in this particular case, what we see is a messenger of Satan is allowed by God to go and tempt him or to, um, to actually cause him to suffer as much as he can, as much as he's allowed to. And Paul says, please take it away three times. And the Lord says, no. 
my grace is sufficient to you. And then Paul discovers this. He said, I will gladly then boast in my weaknesses. Because when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what this means to boast in the Lord. The phrase is used twice in Paul's letters uh, to the Corinthians. It's used first in chapter 1 and verse 31 of 1 Corinthians, and then it's used in chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17, which means the two letters are bookended by the idea of boasting and boasting in the Lord. And 32 times in between, he speaks of boasting one way or another, either the false and few foolish boast of the false teachers or the boast that should be given the boast in the Lord. This came from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, which gives us a good definition of what it means to boast and the right way and the wrong way. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts in this, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Notice the opposite of boasting in the Lord. It's either boasting in one's strength, one's intelligence, or one's wealth. Those are the three things that people still boast in today. That's the idea. Um, watching a football game last week, a guy tackled the, went in and he sacked the quarterback and he turns around and he goes, <laughs> where are we boasting in? I'm strong. I leveled this guy. I'm strong. Well, that's, that just epitomizes humanity. And Paul says, and the Lord says, look, in the context of Jeremiah, Babylonians are outside the walls. You boast in how smart you are and you think you're going to get around this. You boast in your defenses and your strength and you're going to die. You boast in your, your intelligence and you're going to die. And you think you have all this money and somehow you're going to buy your way out of this and you're going to die. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord because the Lord is the only one who can deliver you. Stop and think about where you put your confidence. Let's change the word boast to confidence. It's used interchangeably in scriptures. You'll see it in Philippians chapter 3. What do you have confidence in in this life? Where do you gain your confidence, whether it's in your job or what you own or your, your ability to work things out in your mind? Where is your confidence? Where is your boast in other words when it's all said and done your only hope of escaping the tragedies of life and going through those things to be exalted and and in glory with the lord is the lord himself nothing else is going to come to your come to your help Judges chapter 10, we see the picture of, of the Israelites taken into bondage and they had been abused for 18 years and they had been worshiping all kinds of idols and they finally turned to the Lord and the Lord says, uh, go away. I've helped you every time. Now just go ask your own idols and gods to help you. 
Whatever we put our confidence in, that's what we're asking to deliver us when the time comes that we need help. And it's not going to be there from God if that's where our confidence is. And this is the foundation for what Paul is emphasizing here. Now for Paul in the Corinthian letters, boasting in the Lord is seen in a broader sense than, okay, you're about to get attacked, who are you going to put your trust? It's giving up control in our life. It is dependency completely and totally upon the Lord. Now, think about what that means to give up control, especially when threatened by severe trials or threatened with things that you cannot do anything about. All right, we're going to spend most of the, we're going to spend the rest of our time here primarily in looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to just look at three main points here, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and beginning at verse 17. If we can understand this, we'll see the foundation of what Paul is emphasizing here in the text. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 17. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, stop right there. Just notice first, verse 17 and 18. First thing that we should consider is that that it is odd that Paul brings up baptism in the sense that we're saying there's a lot of things you could have illustrated that would have indicated the Corinthian boasting. And here they're boasting in who would baptize them and who was the one who was due them. But consider this. Baptism itself is a symbol of suffering. It's a symbol that says when I'm immersed in Christ, what I have done is, is I am baptized into His death. Romans 6 and verse 3 and 4. And therefore, symbolically, I have just announced and confessed the fact that my life is no longer my life. That life died, and I'm raised now with Him, and I'm going to live for Him. So first and foremost, that's the picture that is given there. Then notice how that connects with verse 18. For the ESV says, word of the cross... Other versions, older versions, the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Why would you suppose that the message of the cross is is folly? Well, because it, it tells me how I have to live. The message of the cross is not simply Jesus died on a cross. The message of the cross is not simply Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins. The message of the cross is that Jesus did this so that He signaled to us the kind of life He's asking us to live. That's probably the hardest things for us to get get in our mind because we have concentrated for so long just on what Jesus died for. He died for the forgiveness of my sins. And then we don't make a life connection to what He's asked us to do. The message of the cross was folly to these people because it was demanding that they live this way. That they follow Him. And we know that simply from what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. When He says, and if you're going to follow Me, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself. It indicates the kind of life that has to be lived. In verse 23, 
22 and 23, Paul says, For for the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Why Why would this idea of Christ crucified be a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Romans and to the Gentiles? It's because it doesn't exalt them. If it doesn't exalt me, I don't want to do it. If it doesn't bring me something, I don't want to do it. There's the opposite then. Where is my boast? Where are are my accomplishments? What am I trying to prove in this life? They go, I'm not looking for a Savior that goes to a cross because that means I have to be that disciple. I have to follow Him. I have to live that way. In in verse 27 through 31, he says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Of God. You remember the story of Naaman the leper? So Naaman is dying of leprosy. He's the great captain of the Syrian army. He finds out that a prophet in Israel can heal him of his leprosy. He grabs all of his army and he gets on his chariots and he pulls up to, uh, up to the house of Elisha, of, of Elijah. Elisha, right. <laughs> uh, he pulls up the house of the tent or house of Elisha. Elisha doesn't bother coming out, just sends his servant guy to go out and go dip in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman is livid. And he goes away just, I'm done with this. I want to meet, I hope we do one day that he's saved, I want to meet the servant who pulled up beside his chariot as they're rushing off and saying, "Um, if the prophet had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? (laughs) You see, Naaman had said, well, I thought he was going to come out and call in the name of the Lord his God and wipe, just push his hand over the leprosy and voila, it's gone. Why couldn't I dip in a fancy river? Why couldn't I climb a big mountain? Why couldn't I do something great? Because God chose the weak things of the world. Go dip seven times in that muddy Jordan River. Let's see how much faith you have now. Let's see where you're going to put your honor and your boast and your glory now i wonder how embarrassing it was to naaman in front of all his men all gallant men to walk out in that river and dip in that muddy jordan seven times and each time come up and look over at the shore at them and look at the leprosy and wonder if the seventh time was going to do the trick But it humbled Naaman. Because his salvation came at that point, it humbled him. He went back to Elisha. He came back with gold and silver. Let me pay you. He says, nope, not the way this works. He says, could I have a load of dirt? 
So when I go back to Syria, I can bow down to God on the dirt that God made in Israel. Suddenly the man has learned whom God chose. That's the picture. God chose for us to live the cross. And that's the essence of what we studied this morning that Adam taught us is so good there in Philippians chapter 2. He is teaching us the, 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 the message that we must go through in order to get to the cross. John MacArthur said these words, God's wisdom is a kind of paradox. In human thinking, strength is strength, weakness is weakness, and intelligence is intelligence. But in God's economy, some of the seemingly strongest things are the weakest. Some of the seemingly weakest things are the strongest. And some of the seemingly wisest things are the most foolish. The paradox is not by accident, but by God's design. It's all said and done. We mean absolutely nothing. We can attain absolutely nothing. He is the one, and only through Him do we have anything. And every time we try to take control, we are saying, God, I don't need you. And this is played out in some very, very serious ways. So here is how Paul talks about the picture of what it means to boast in self as opposed to boast in the Lord. Look at chapter 4 and, and of 1 Corinthians and notice beginning at verse, at verse 8. Paul says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our hands, our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Boasting in the Lord indicates that's the willingness we have and the way we are willing to live. That it is not about what we attain in this life. It is not about what we, can, what we can be to the world. Paul goes on. In chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 14 through 16, Paul says, We have become captives in Christ's triumphal procession simple phrase 
until you look at it from a Roman point of view. Jesus took us captive and is parading us through the world. In the parade, in order to glorify God, some of us will die. That's the Roman. That was the Roman captive. In the parade, some of us will not die. But either way, we are used as those who are fragrance to the world through the gospel of Christ to some to life, from life to life, from some to death to death. We are given over to Him as His captives. In chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, We are nothing but jars of clay in which a great treasure is given. And in verse 8 he says, As the result of that, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not given to driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For we who who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So the life of Jesus also may be manifested, made visible in our mortal flesh. So death, death is at work in us, but life in you. Do you carry the body of Jesus around? Do you carry the death of Jesus around? Are you given over to death so that the life of of Jesus can be seen in your body. That's what he's telling us here. We carry this valuable treasure, but we are nothing but jars of clay, willing to break the jar so that the treasure can be seen. And lest you think Paul was only talking about himself, in chapter 5, in verse 14 and 15, he continues the picture. When he says the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The picture he keeps giving through the letter is that you and I, in order to serve Him, die so others can live. That's the picture. We would rejoice and gladly boast in our weaknesses, is the picture He gives. Now, let's conclude. Back to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Notice three times this phrase used. First in chapter 11, verse 30. If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Chapter 12 and verse 5. He says, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Chapter 12, verse 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Three times Paul emphasizes, I'm going to boast only in my weaknesses. If I must boast, 
that is where I will boast. Please ask yourself this question. Anyone boasting in the, in the defeat that you went through through the last trial? Anybody boasting in a present trial that is wearing you down to the point where you say to yourself, I don't think I can take it another minute or another day. Anyone boasting that you prayed for deliverance and God said no? Anyone boasting about how difficult and inconvenienced you are to serve others and to serve God? Anyone boasting about how time-consuming it is to be a Christian and to give up your life? Hmm. That's a different boast, isn't it? That's a different look altogether. Anyone boasting, especially when God says, I'm asking you to die so others can live. Anyone boasting? That is an entirely different look at this. Again, go back to verse 7. After Paul says, I will gladly, I will gladly vote, boast in these things, he told, tells us that the thorn was to keep him from becoming arrogant. What does it mean to become arrogant? It's relying on self. It's saying that I, I can do this on my own, so please take the thorn away and let me do it. No, 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 God says. You're not doing that. My strength is what need, you need. My power is what you need. You think there's anything more difficult than giving up control of your life? I can't imagine anything more difficult and let yet God insist on control. You say, how am I going to give up my control? There's only one way it happens. It happens through trial. It happens through suffering. It happens through weakness. It's not simply that though it happens through following him as the hebrew letter would say following him in suffering in order to get to glory and not complaining about how hard it is there's something else that's important here this is every commentator i read on this have said this is the summit of the epistle this is the lofty peak from which the whole is viewed in true proportion. It's coming to the point where in suffering and in trial you are able to gladly boast that you get to go through it because of what it's going to do for you. So that the power of Christ may rest upon you. Paul gave, God gave Paul a thorn 
to keep him from becoming conceited and arrogant, to keep him from thinking in his own terms, because only by that is his strength sufficient and his power to be used. Otherwise, we walk out on the other side of the trial, we walk out on the other side of the, of the life, or whatever we accomplish, and we say to ourselves, look what I did. Look how I, pretty, I, was, I did pretty good on that. And here's, here's what really struck me about this. You also want God in control. Once you can give it all up, you'll be the most joyful person that you have ever been in your life, but it will be at the depth of trial. It'll be at the depth of suffering. Count it all joy, my brethren, Paul, James said, when you fall into various trials. Rejoice, Paul said in Romans 5, when you come through varied tribulations. And we scratch our heads and say, what are you talking about? Because only then, through experience, will you be able to say, it's all yours because I can't do anything about it. When I've thought about the trials I've been through, and you think about the trials you've been through, I see it like a graph. Starts out and you go, hmm, not like this, this is uncomfortable. Pretty soon it gets a little worse, and you go, well, I, I, maybe I should start praying. And then it gets a little worse, and you say, I need to do something about this. Let me talk to some people. Maybe there's some remedy, and it gets a little worse. And we're going, all right, this is enough. You know, this is really, really hard. And then we talk to some more people, and then we start yelling and complaining. And then we're getting a little upset about this, and it just keeps going down. And then finally we get to the point where we're going, wait a minute. This isn't my life. You need to cut it out. If he wants to tear my life apart, I need to stop complaining about it. Because the only way I'm going to ever endure this is to stop trying to control it. It's his. And then, and only then, can you say, I will boast in the Lord. Because I have confidence in what He will do, not what I can do. The tough part about this is, we all want Him to be in control, but we cannot just theoretically. Can't you just see Paul? Hey, hey, uh, God, could you just... Could you just come and have a conversation with me and say, okay, now look, Paul, I'm giving you some great things here. You're really exalted. You're going to write 13 letters in the New Testament. You're going to just be the greatest apostle that ever was. So please just don't get arrogant about it. I'm going to catch you up into third heaven. I'm going to show you things you can't even tell other people. But don't get arrogant about it. And Paul says, impossible. So he sent me a thorn. And he wouldn't take it away. So that I wouldn't do that. 
And so I will more gladly boast in my weaknesses, because then and only then am I letting him be the one in control. And I'll tell you what, you want it that way. Because when you can say, he's the one who can do whatever he wants with my life, you're going to be the happiest person on the face of the earth. Because whatever happens, you're going, cool. His ways are higher than my ways. Whatever happens, you're going to go, okay, bring me through it. Because his ways are better than my ways. And whatever he does, he's going, you're going to say, fantastic. Because... This is His way of getting me to be prepared to be His bride. Let's go. Strap it on. Get on the roller coaster. Here we go. You've been there if you've had a bad trial. You've been there. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Oh, I forgot it. Don't forget it. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I am content. Can you say that? I am content with weaknesses, then I'm strong. You ever wonder what thorn of flesh is? Yeah, everybody, what's the thorn in the flesh? What's the thorn in the flesh? What's the thorn in the flesh? I'm going to throw it out here, right here. Did you notice? He prayed that the thorn would be taken away, and when it wasn't, he said, I will therefore boast more gladly in the weaknesses. What were those, Paul? Oh, oh, were you possibly talking about back in chapter 11, how every city I went in, they beat the living daylights out of me, and I got tired of it? And when I went into Corinth, I'm trembling. Maybe that's it. Shipwrecked five times, a day and the night in the deep, beaten over and over and over again. He is an absolute mess. And God said, I'm not taking it away. How did Paul reach that summit peak? I will more gladly boast in my weaknesses because when i'm weak that's when i'm strong give it up that's what jesus said whoever would save his life you trying to save your life right now whoever saves his life you trying to go around and get all the gusto you trying to soak every little physical thing you can out of it whoever saves his life is going to lose it And whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. We must stop trying to save our lives and boast only in the Lord. Can we help you in some way? Please talk to us. If you have not come to Christ, if you have not been buried with him in baptism, you have not yet done what he asked you to do to have your sins forgiven. It is that point where you touch the blood of Jesus. And it is at that point when you say to yourself, I'm no longer living my life. It's His. You can do that. You can do that this morning. If we can help you, please come while we stand and sing.